How's the, how's the place? Good, good, good. Um, the, the doorknob's about to fall off the front door, but uh, oh. aside from that, I, I, I want to remember my keys uh, maybe at a, at a certain point here. Uh, other than that, think, think things are pretty good. <laughs> this is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, this week the New Orleans City Council held another in a series of meetings on the relocation of dozens of families from the Gordon Plaza subdivision. An appeals court dealt the City of New Orleans a blow when it upheld a lower court's 2021 order that the administration must move forward with construction on the controversial jail facility known as Phase 3. And this week, a judge in Orleans Parish Civil District Court We'll hear arguments about whether or not to allow the state to enforce its blanket abortion ban. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hey, Josh. Hey, Carolyn. Good morning. Morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Josh, up first with you in the Gordon Plaza story. The City Council held another in a series of meetings on progress and the relocation of dozens of families from the Gordon Plaza subdivision. It was built by the city atop a toxic garbage dump and it was declared a hazard by the EPA. What happened this week? So basically the the takeaway here is that the city has moved forward with um, Selecting a law firm, uh, it's, it's it's a local firm, Share Gardner, um, to um, uh, provide services associated with the the relocation of these residents. You know, it's it's unclear to me at, at the moment exactly what the relationship will will entail, but the the thrust of it is is that this law firm is, is going to be uh, assessing costs associated with the relocation and basically the hope is that by the end of this year the residents who some of whom have lived on on top of this toxic site for decades will have the funds to to finally move off and and you know begin their lives anew if you will okay some city council members are raising questions about this firm what's the issue so there, there was a concern raised by uh, council member at large, J.P. Morrell, that there was a conflict of interest with the city's decision to solicit services from this uh, firm because the, the administration had um, used the services of this fund, in, in, uh, of this firm rather, in, in a lawsuit against the city council in, in, in a previous case. And Councilmember Morell was saying that the firm would need to basically get the, the blessing of the city council itself before they could move forward because the law firm in, in this case would be acting on behalf of the city council as well. Mm, okay. Is this, I, I would guess, maybe Charles, you might answer this yeah. question. Um, the, the process by which they contract a a law firm like this to handle something, how is that different or not from a normal sort of RFP 
So it depends on who you, who you ask, actually. So the the process that they they actually use um, is is very similar to our to other types of RFPs. Basically, they put out an RFP, um, they get some respondents. Those respondents are evaluated by uh, a, a panel of people uh, of you know subject matter experts in the city, um, and uh, and then whoever whoever gets the best score uh, earns the right to get the contract. That's for any uh, contract that's going to be worth more than fifteen thousand mm. um, dollars. What the uh, the sort of wrinkle here that was brought up in the loss in the other lawsuit that Josh mentioned was uh, that there is a provision in the charter that says uh, that says for a special counsel, um, which which some interpret to mean any outside legal service. Um, that it has to be uh, approved by the city council as well before it can be signed. Now, the, the other lawsuit that Cher Garner was involved in was actually uh, the, uh, a dispute involving the whole smart cities controversy mm. over a uh, subpoena that the, uh, that the city council had issued to, an, uh, to Mayor LaToya Cantrell's chief of staff. And that argument about uh, council approval got brought up in, in that lawsuit by the council and in their uh, replies to the city's lawsuit. Mm. Um, and it was never really adjudicated in court. And that's actually, that's, that's been brought up in the past and has, uh, has never been fully adjudicated in court that I'm oh. aware of. Okay. And so Joshua, what are residents saying about that? Some residents at, at first were um, raising concerns over this uh, potential conflict of interest. Um, at one of the previous meetings, they uh, uh, some some were saying that they're concerned that this firm would be working solely in, in the interest of the city and, and, and wouldn't fairly be uh, representing their interests in the case. Um, but I, you know, I, I was speaking with uh, one one of the residents this morning, um, Jesse Perkins, who was saying that you know at at, at this point the the focus is, is not really on. Cher Garner or whoever is going to be fulfilling this this contract for the city, they they're they're just ready to to, to have it done. Basically, they're they're ready to have their funds and 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 they they want to have the process complete by the end the, the end of this year. You can understand uh, their concerns though, right? Because um, you know, I mean, first of all, they not only this group of people from Gordon Plaza, but but a larger group of people who had previously lived in Gordon Plaza and surrounding neighborhoods, been fighting with the city for decades, you know, has, uh, has gotten judgments against the city um, and, and other agencies, which haven't, haven't always resulted in actual payments going out. And, and, you know, getting this 35 million was a bit of a fight with the city as well. So uh, they're going to be concerned that the city is going to try to, you know, use these, use the law firm to you know, save as much money as possible, lowball people on their property values. I mean, their properties are not are not worth much on the open market because they're on a Superfund site. Right. Um, so, uh, but but obviously they're going to need enough they're going to need enough money to be able to to buy new homes. Um, so this you know, in order to make them in any way whole, the city's going to have to do a lot better than market value. And it, I, I could understand them being concerned that that you know they're 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 going to get very little for their homes. Right. So as you're saying right now, the, the money is really what it all comes down to now. So they finally allocated some money for the relocation of these residents. What do we know about when the residents will see the money? And will they just be handing over 
checks to each individual person or do they help relocate them by finding them new places? How is it going to work? So my, I'll, my understanding, I'll, I'll take the second part first. Um, my, my understanding is that the it'll, it'll be incumbent on the residents themselves to to find their own uh, homes once they have the the, the funds in hand. And um, yeah, you know, it's 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 a great question. Uh, the the city council allocated the thirty five million dollars last month. Um, they, they kind of reallocated it away from other projects that the city had not yet. Um, initiated, as, as far as I understand, the administration is basically saying at this point that, you know, before we hand over this money, we've got to do our due diligence and we, we've got to, to evaluate th- this case and these individual cases. And um, we, we've got to, you know, dot our I's and cross our T's before we just hand over the money. So that's kind of where Sheriff Garner comes in, in in this case to, to make sure that everything's kosher, if you will. Mm. Okay. Yeah, and, and they might run up, you know, part of the reason they might be, uh, is part of this legal work. And so I, I believe there are some provisions in state law that say that a state subdivision, like a, a municipal government, isn't supposed to be buying properties at above market value. So that might be a bit of a legal challenge to get if the administration's intent is indeed to get these people the money that they actually need to move and buy new houses. Um, as I said before, it, it will probably have to be above market value, um, but that, that might be, again, a legal, a legal issue that they're gonna have to tangle with. Hmm. Okay. One, one last thing is, um, you know, just, I'm sure this is something we've all observed, but the housing market is not exactly static at, at the moment. House prices are, are increasing. So there's an, an implication there that, you know, the, the clock is ticking and, and the longer it takes, for the city to actually distribute the funds that has an impact on the options for these residents. Right. Yeah. Right. That's true as well. Okay. Great story. Thank you. Absolutely. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heltman. My guests this week are environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, criminal justice reporter Nick Grastel education reporter, Marta Jusen, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. When you listen to this podcast or read a story at our website, you join in on the process of examining life and culture in a way that makes us all better citizens and better people. With more and more noise and information coming at us every day, it's important to have a place you can rely on for truth and balance. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at our website, thelensnola.org slash donate. And thank you. Nick, last week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit handed the city of New Orleans another legal defeat in the ongoing battle over a proposed new $51 million jail building known as Phase 3. What was the ruling? Um, the ruling was that the city needs to move forward with uh, building phase three. So it upheld a district court ruling that that found the same thing, that found that the building is necessary for uh, housing detainees with, with serious mental health issues and, and serious medical issues. Um, and, and the city was arguing basically that there was a change in circumstances that did that, that allowed them to get out of this initial court order to build the facility 
namely that they were providing better mental health care to people in their custody, uh, that the COVID-19 pandemic sort of um, uh, decreased the city's revenue and they, they weren't going to have enough money for the building, and then also that the jail population had declined uh, pretty dramatically in the last several years and that that should allow them to, to get out of it. The appellate court panel pretty, you know, kind of swiftly and roundly dismissed all these uh, uh, alleged change in circumstances. They said that uh, the city has more FEMA funding than, than they are even um, alleging they have, even though right now the city claims that basically 38 million of the 51 million come from, from FEMA. The appellate court said that it would be closer to actually 50 million, closer to the whole cost. They said that the, the jail population, you know, had been predictably declining, that, that the city was actually aware that, that the jail population would, would be around where it is today. Um, so that wasn't much of a change in circumstances. And that basically the jail still is not providing, you know, constitutional mental health care for, for people in its custody. So that was that was sort of the thrust of the opinion from the uh, appellate court. And it was not surprising really you know when the city had oral arguments back in march kind of a lot of these issues were brought up and the 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 judges did not seem you know particularly sympathetic to them it's sort of reminiscent of charles you might relate um having young kids who who get told by one parent no and then they go to the other parent hoping for another uh reprieve you know like maybe ask ask mom if dad says no um the new sheriff, Hudson, was elected in part because she was opposed to the construction of this facility. What's she saying now to this defeat? Uh, she's basically saying that, that they are assessing their options. Um, I think that they're, they're in a tricky position. Um, on, on the one hand, you know, she, she was opposed to this facility. On the other hand, I don't know that there's much legal room for for her administration to really prevent it from happening. So we'll see. I mean, I'm not quite sure what the what the next angle will be, or if there's any room in in this litigation for them to try and try and you know throw in another roadblock in some way. I'm not sure this you know theoretically could be something. I, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not sure if this is something that you can take as an appeal to the Supreme Court. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I guess that may be a possibility. Um, who knows if the court would actually take this case. But uh, the, the likely legal outcome here seems to be that the city is going to have to, is going to have to, depending on how, how you want to phrase it, it's actually a legal, um, it's actually a legal question, but the city either has to live up to its agreement from 2016 and 2017 to, uh, to build this jail. But I do have a question for Nick because, you know, it's been sort of apparent, at least to me, that this was, and I'm sure to you as well, that this was going to be the outcome of this um, for a while. When Susan Hudson was campaigning, she was campaigning as someone who was, you know, she was very much aligned with uh, uh, reform, criminal justice reform groups like the Orleans Parish Prison Reform Co uh, Coalition. And she took their position, you know, she, she adopted their positions on phase three. When she was campaigning, did she acknowledge that this might be something that she's unable to do anything about when mm. she becomes sheriff? You know, I don't know that she 
sort of got into the the specific mechanisms in which she would be able to prevent this. You know, I think it was a, a vague sort of, I shouldn't say vague. It was a, a promise to, to, you know, oppose the facility. It, I don't know that she ever made the promise that she would be successful in, in preventing the facility from being built. And, you know, to her credit, she has opposed the facility. She, oh, yeah. you know, intervened in, even prior to becoming sheriff. Uh, and, and you know, made arguments in front of the appellate court that that this this facility wasn't necessary. Um, and you know, in her public statements as well, she she's been opposed to it. But you know, I, I think it was apparent to uh, anyone who's paying close attention that her election alone wasn't going to to necessarily change the outcome of this. Um, we were too far along in this process. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this, this has been a this has been an ongoing, and it wasn't you know it wasn't just it's not just the sheriff who is who is you know uh, right. in favor of this facility. It's the United States Department of Justice and, and civil rights attorneys representing the people inside the jail who are who are really pushing for it as well. So. We're talking about matters that were in many ways resolved several years ago. You know, at this point, with with all the other parties to the consent decree, uh, other than the city. And, uh, and now the sheriff's office, but not previously the sheriff's office. By the time we got to the point where they were all in favor of this, it was, you know, it was inevitable that they were gonna remain in favor of this. If the city and the sheriff's office wanted to do some, an alternative plan, they needed to start plan, making that alternative plan probably you know, at the latest in 2017 or 2018. And that you know, never happened. Um, we didn't even start talking about it until mid to late 2020 when the city, um, when the city, you know, initially refused to continue work. And by that point, like everything else we're talking about, the process was so far along that, that, you know, eventually these court decisions became inevitable. And let me ask this, part or most of the money, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is allocated from FEMA? Yeah, well, yeah, and and uh, depending depending on, on on who you ask, um, it's it's either almost all of it or or simply most of it. So okay. The city has long claimed that uh, FEMA will only put in somewhere between thirty six and thirty nine million dollars on what had been estimated as a fifty fifty one million dollar facility, and that 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 price tag has almost definitely grown since that estimate was made. Right. But. Um, it actually comes from a pot uh, of uh, post-Katrina FEMA money uh, meant to replace uh, uh, one or two of the uh, former Orleans Parish prison jail buildings. And that, that money, in, as initially allocated, came to about $70 million. Some of it has been spent on other things, improvements at the jail and maybe some other projects. I can't remember exactly. Uh, but uh, the court has found, um, after uh, a series of arguments from uh, the former sheriff's office and the, the former jail compliance director, uh, that there is close to $50 million left in that pot, which, you know, would cover almost 100% of the, of the originally estimated construction costs. Um, but, you know, the counter, the counter argument is you're, you know, you're going to need more staff and you're going to need more specialized staff costing in the, somewhere in the neighborhood of of you know eight to ten million dollars a year whether you're talking about a retrofit of the current jail or whether you're talking about an entirely new building but here here's the question then because of that because it, if it is fema it was fema money attached to uh post-katrina recovery 
it has an expiration date, right? So what happens if if they run out the clock on on that that money? Well, Nick did a story about that, so he can he can answer that with with more detail. I mean, it's it's kind of an open question. The city is is going to ask for an extension um, right now. The the facility almost certainly won't be finished prior to the expiration date, um, and I think they're really counting on, on FEMA granting them this this waiver. And you know, if not, I think that the city will likely be on the hook. Doesn't seem like this is going. That's going to be something that's going to convince the federal judge at this point to, to kind of, you know, give them any leeway in terms of building this. He's been very clear that that, that won't be an option. So. I think in terms of legal decisions, as, we, as we've been saying, you know, the handwriting's been on the wall for a while. So I, I just, I wonder what they're thinking down at, you know, I'm curious as to what they're thinking is down at City Hall, uh, because um, they probably have a better chance of, ex- of getting an extension if they're pretty far, if they're farther along. Um, by the time they ask for the extension than they than they currently are. Right. So I don't know. Maybe we'll see them pick up the pace on this project. <laughs> yeah. They also have the 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 judge has been pretty clear that the threat of contempt is kind of hanging over their heads if they keep delaying this project in any further. Um, yes. So that's something that they're definitely considering as well. Okay. Well, thanks, Nick. Thank you. In more legal news, Marta, we'll turn to you. On Friday, a judge in Orleans Parish Civil District Court will hear arguments about whether or not to allow the state to enforce its blanket abortion ban. The ban was supposed to go into effect as soon as the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, but it's been under a temporary restraining order following the filing of a lawsuit by a Shreveport clinic. What's been going on since the TRO has been in effect? There's been a lot more legal action, or at least, you know, filings um, and, you know, allegations been thrown at both sides. Um, On the services side, uh, clinics said they were going to resume services and providing abortions during this TRO period. But then when you come back to Attorney General Jeff Landry, he's, you know, instructed these clinics that the the bans are essentially in effect. So a lot of a lot of jostling there. Yeah, he's done it. He, but you know, as I think we talked about it last week, he's done it indirectly, right? He ha- hasn't actually, that I'm aware, sent letters to the clinics or sent letters to the state me- medical licensing board. He sent one letter to a uh, to to the Louisiana Medical Society, which is you know similar to like a trade association, and he sent and and he posted the letter on Twitter. You know, as we mentioned last week, that got some people thinking that perhaps this is an empty threat because he's. He's, he's worried that if he sends legal threats directly to the people who could be affected and those legal threats are not valid, um, that he could get himself in trouble. Has been the speculation. Okay, so a- empty threats aside, what's been going on in the courts? Okay, so the temporary restraining order was granted on June 27th, and that hearing is going to happen on Friday. In the meantime, like Charles said, there's been a lot of um, additional kind of, you know, happenings on social media and... Jeff Landry went so far as to appeal to the Supreme Court, um, asking for them to stop the temporary restraining order. And he made several arguments in that, including that this lawsuit, which is occurring in Orleans Parish, um, but was filed on behalf of a, a medical clinic in Shreveport, um, that this is the proper venue for the lawsuit to be occurring. Um, he also you know, argues against the reasons in the temporary restraining order that he, he argues that the trigger laws, you know, that is clear there's no body that establishes when a trigger law would go into effect. So there's 
you know, there's not really an argument there. He also argues that, um, you know, the, the penalties in the law are clear and that the timing is clear. So he's basically arguing that this TRO doesn't have any merit. So I was looking through his Supreme Court arguments yesterday, and he's basically, you know, this whole thing rests on whether the, the, the trigger laws are unconstitutionally vague. Um, and basically, the argument that they're making is that there are three different trigger laws that use slightly different language between all three of them. Um, and a person, a, a, a person who is subject to prosecution under, under these trigger laws, you know, would have no idea which law, uh, which law would apply to them um, and which penalties would apply to them, um, thus making the laws uh, too, too vague to be valid. So the one interesting part about that, the one thing that, that, that personally I've always thought was, was very vague um, is, is the penalties. And he addresses part of the argument that is made by uh, the clinic in, in his Supreme Court filing, but he doesn't actually address the most confusing penalties that are in the law. So the law basically provides for a 10-year penalty for any abortion, up to 10 years, um, or a 15-year penalty for a late-term abortion, um, So, uh, which, which is defined as being 15 weeks or later gestational age. Part of the argument was that the 10-year and 15-year, because the 15-year was inclusive of, of the 10-year penalties, a person wouldn't be sure which one you know, uh, it, it, it's too vague which one you would be violating. Mm. Uh, you know, could you could you theoretically be charged with both for the same offense? I thought that one was a little bit of a stretch from the clinic. The one that does confuse me, though, is just, just not taking late term or, or not into account just plain abortion of any kind. There are two, two separate provisions in two separate parts of the law. Um, one is in like the, you know, the Title 40, which is health. Um, and the other one is in Title 14, which is criminal law. Title 14 for abortion provides a 10-year uh, maximum penalty, and Title 40 provides a two-year maximum penalty for the exact same offense. Hmm. Um, to me, that was that was the, the the little nugget that they had in their lawsuit that I thought, wow, that really is something. That that this really does seem to me like it's a problem in the law. Jeff Landry did not address that. He only addressed the 10 versus 15 for late year, late term versus non-late term, not the two versus 10 for the exact same offense. Hmm. But And in this violate, I feel like he's trying to work around it because he, he it gives an example. Charles, I think this is in the same part where he says, you know, you could be charged with theft or theft of livestock and, you know, right, a similar right, scenario. Right. So he tries to say that you could be found guilty under multiple laws yeah. And yeah exactly it's you know it, it would be up to the prosecutor's discretion which to charge you with um etc so he makes the argument and this is based on case law that when you're talking about uh when you're making an unconstitutional vagueness a, a constitutional vagueness argument the only thing that has to be clear enough to pass constitutional muster is the definition of the offense itself mm. and not the penalty provision. He's essentially making the argument that saying the penalties are vague doesn't matter. It's a moot, it's a legally moot argument. I don't know if that's true or not. You know, I don't know I don't know what the what the plaintiff's counter argument to that would or will be. Um, but that's how he deals with the penalties part, which to my mind was in fact the vaguest and most confusing part of the trigger. Right, right, right. Huh. And how is the state Supreme Court involved now? What, how's he wrangling? So he did something very unusual. 
you know, this TRO, um, it got a it got a pretty quick follow up hearing on a per, per preliminary and permanent injunction. So we, they got this TRO. I can't remember what the date was, but it was very recent. Um, and then the, the the judge set a set a hearing date for July eighth, something like ten days after the TRO went into effect. He waited several days after it went into effect, and then filed a, a, filed a writ to the Supreme Court asking them to essentially overturn the TRO, even though it would have, you know, it, it only had five or five, four or five days until the hearing left. Um, and he also asked the, the state Supreme Court to stay the proceedings in Orleans Parish Civil District Court. So basically he was doing a run around the district court to just to tell the Supreme Court to just stomp out, stomp out this lawsuit. Um, kind of hedging, and, uh, hedging his so bets. The Supreme Court denied both. They, huh. they, 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 did, they didn't indicate that, you know, they didn't deny it on the merits or anything like that. They didn't, um, they didn't say that, you know, this is a bad lawsuit or anything. They, they, or, or, or they, they didn't say this was a valid lawsuit or anything. They just said at this point in the proceedings, we're not going to get involved. So it seems like they're waiting to see what the judge in Orleans Parish District Court does tomorrow and as a reminder today when we record this is thursday right okay and then so separately separately landed he has also filed in the local court in the civil court um he's filed his exceptions these same things that he argued in the supreme court filing that it's an improper venue um and that you know they don't have any cause of action those are called exceptions which you can file for them you know at any point during a suit so tomorrow friday's hearing is you know, set to be on this temporary restraining order and whether it becomes a preliminary injunction. But it is possible that the judge also takes up Landry's arguments on these exceptions. So uh, yeah. not exactly sure what we're going to see on Friday. Yeah, the, the exceptions, he's essentially accusing them of, uh, of trying, to, of, of trying to, to pick their judge. Um, you know, it, he's, he's basically saying that, you know, if you read between the lines, he's saying that, you know, they thought they would get a more sympathetic ear in Orleans Parish than they would up in Shreveport. And he's saying that's all good, fine and well. The only problem is they don't have any standing to file in Orleans Parish Civil District Court. Mm. The, 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 the clinic that's affected that will, you know, the clinic that will actually be affected with fear of prosecution under the law is not in Orleans Parish. The, uh, the state health department and the AG's office, the two defendants in the case, are not based out of Orleans Parish. This should have either been, in, he's saying this should have either been filed in Baton Rouge or Shreveport, not not New Orleans. And, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see what the judge says on that tomorrow. Okay, B- bottom line, I guess, that all this legal wrangling is one thing. On the other hand, there are women there that need these services still and probably would be very desperate to access them. Have any of these facilities, these three facilities in the state been operating this time? I don't know this for sure. What I do know is that they said that they were going to resume services. I'm actually not sure offhand about the, so there are three clinics in the state. I'm not sure offhand about the clinic in Baton Rouge, but I know that the uh, 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 New Orleans clinic started a few days after the TRO uh, went into effect. And I believe the Shreveport clinic, the plaintiff in the case, uh, began taking patients again the day after the TRO went went into effect. Hence, hence Jeff Jeff Landry's um, you know warning letter to them mm. that came out last week. Okay. Okay. Well, tomorrow Friday we'll know more. Yes. Th- thanks, Marta. Thank you. Okay, everybody. Thank you All for right. your work this week. Thank you. Well-
This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Joshua Rosenberg, Nick Krestel, Marta Jusen, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.